Heavenly Father, how full we are to know that we have the privilege to have your word, to open it, to delve into it, to allow it, Lord, to saturate our minds and our hearts because we love you. And our motive, Lord, is to know you and to glorify you, to follow you, and to share you with others. Lord, equip us today by letting us hear. Use your servant, Catherine, to share with us what you have taught to her. And we love you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Happy New Year, everybody. Can you believe we're in 2015? 2015. I am getting old, 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 old. You know, we started this Bible study in 1987. Wow. So in another two years, it'll be, what, 30? 30 years. Whew. I am getting old. <laughs> it is amazing. Okay. Did you have a good holiday? Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's. Are you glad it's over? Yes. Yes. I had a wonderful break, but it seemed like it was long as summer almost. It was a long break, and I missed you all, and I missed being in this study and getting back to Stephen. Not really Stephen, because Stephen was a wonderful guy and a man to emulate, wonderful character, but he, he, he tried to put the preeminence on, on Christ. So he was all about Christ. So really, he's, he lifted up Christ. So I don't want to lift up Stephen. I want to lift up the one that Stephen lifted up. And that, of course, is our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7, you can see on the board. We're going to be looking at the message of Stephen. Last time we looked at the, uh, was it called the ministry of Stephen, I think. And then we'll have the martyrdom of Stephen when we eventually finish the message. But we're going to be in the message for quite a while. Because it is the longest sermon in the book of Acts. Did you know that? Stephen's sermon is the longest sermon in the book of Acts. And he did go through the Old Testament, the whole Old Testament. <laughs> so we can be parked there quite a while. But if you do remember, before we broke for the holidays, we had come to the beginning of the end of the first section of the Lord's commission before his ascension, his commission he gave to his church in Acts 1.8. We came to the end of that first section. Acts 1.8 contains the Lord's words to his followers about what they were to do when the, after receiving the, the Holy Spirit, when the power of the Holy Spirit came upon them, they were to be his witnesses. They would be his witnesses. Where? First of all, where? In Jerusalem, and then in Judea and Samaria, and then third, unto the uttermost part of the earth. Well, <clears throat> the beginning of the end of the church's concentrated witness uh, in Jerusalem, concludes, and that's what we're coming to. The church has pretty much exploded all over Jerusalem, but her witness has been concentrated there. That's about to end. Church is about to go out now into Judea and Samaria. Um, but it concludes, that witness in Jerusalem concludes with a biographical sketch of a man named Stephen, right, and he was the first in the list of seven men chosen to assist the apostles in the ministry work of the early church. And as was true of the other six diakonos, 
They were basically the first deacons, table servers, helpers, assistants to the apostles. As was true with the other six, we found out that Stephen was a Greek-speaking Jew. In other words, he was not born in the land of Israel. He had been born in, we don't know which land, but one of the Gentile lands of the diaspora. <clears throat> now, we learned in our last lesson from Acts about the character of Stephen and what a man he was. He was a real example for all of us. He was a man of fullness because it said that he was full of the Holy Ghost. He was full of wisdom. That's in Acts 6.3. He was full of faith, and he was full of power. He was a man of whom it is said uh, that he was a man of honest report. What does that mean? We need more men like that today, don't we? He was a man of integrity. He was a man of honest report. He had integrity. He also, along with the apostles, was given by the Lord the ability to perform great wonders and miracles. That was in Acts 6.8. Those miracles and wonders were given to him by the resurrected Lord Jesus in order to confirm his message. He was one of only three, two other men besides the apostles who was given this ability. Who were the other two? Do you remember? Way back in November. Philip and Barnabas. Very good. You're the one that answered that last time. Good girl. Good girl. Yes, Philip Barnabas and Stephen, besides the apostles, who are the only ones recorded, at least, who performed miracles. Also, Stephen was a great Bible scholar. Are you going to appreciate that by the time we're finished with his message? This man, I think, had just about memorized the entire Old Testament. But interestingly, some of the things that he says are direct quotes from the Septuagint. Well, that makes sense. Do you know what the Septuagint was? It was the Greek translation of the Old Testament. The Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew, but Stephen was a Greek-speaking Jew, wasn't he? So when he studied the Bible, he studied it in Greek. So his quotes are from, if you look back at Genesis and some of the places he quotes from, a little bit different. That's because he's quoting from the Greek Old Testament. But boy, did he know his scripture. He was uh, using scripture, the Old Testament, to defend his faith in Jesus as the Christ. He was what we could call a Christian apologist. He was not only on the offensive, but he was on the defensive. He knew how to defend the scripture to support Christ, which we all should be. We should all know how to give an answer to every man that asks us for the hope that is in us. We need to be apologists to know. And you know what? If you ever have to witness to somebody, <clears throat> you could read his sermon. You could just read uh, Stephen's sermon. It is so powerful, and it, ta it just talks about so much. I thought about that. I thought, I could just read the sermon, because, <laughs> boy, did it cut to the heart of those who heard it. In fact, no one, we were told, he had what we could call an irresistible ministry, because we were told in uh, chapter 6, verse 10, that no one, you know, he went into the Greek-speaking synagogues there in Jerusalem and debated with them and presented Christ to them using the Old Testament, and no one was able to resist the wisdom or the spirit by which Stephen spoke. And it is very possible, we discussed this, this um, before, that one of the learned Greek-speaking Jewish scholars who was not able to resist the truth that Stephen spoke from the scripture, nor the spirit in which he spoke it, which you know was a loving, gentle, kind, but bold spirit, was 
possibly a young man named Saul, a Pharisee named Saul, who was from Tarsus of the Roman province of Cilicia. Likely, you know, now Saul had probably been living in Jerusalem since maybe 12 or 13 years old, but he had been born in Tarsus of Cilicia. So whenever he would go to a local synagogue, he probably went to the synagogue of the Cilicians. And that, if you'll notice, was the last synagogue. I think purposely was the last synagogue mentioned in Acts 6, 9, just to give us that hint that Saul was probably present when uh, Stephen would go in and debate with the leaders there. But even that prized student of the famous um, Rabbi Gamaliel could not refute the scripture that Stephen used in order to support Jesus as Messiah. You know, there are people that say the Old Testament isn't very important, you know. Just the New Testament, that's all we need is the New Testament. No, 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 no. The Old Testament is what gives us the evidence we need to know that Jesus is the Messiah. Somebody said, I think it was, I think it was Martin Luther who said that the Old Testament is basically the cradle that you put the baby Jesus in. I like that. But you have to have the Old Testament. That's how we have confidence in who Jesus is. Um, of course, the resurrection, but that was predicted in the, in the Old Testament as well. But even, anyway, even Saul could not debate with, who uh, could not refute the scripture that Stephen used. Now, that doesn't mean that Saul, who later, you know, became the Apostle Paul. Did I say that? You know who Saul was, right? Uh, if he was present, that doesn't mean that he and the other synagogue leaders came into agreement with Stephen. Maybe some did. Probably some did come to believe. But it is to say that they could not silence his defense of Christ with the same weapon that he used. And what was his one weapon? What was it? The sword of the Lord, the word of God, the Old Testament scriptures. <clears throat> because the Old Testament does, it provides more than ample evidence that Jesus perfectly fulfilled all the credentials for the Messiah. They could not resist Stephen's wisdom in using his weapon, but they still opposed his witness because they willfully still opposed Jesus. That's the reason. They opposed and still rejected Jesus. They would not believe and they would not repent. Uh, because that would do serious damage to their pride, um, that they had been wrong in having gone along with their spiritual leaders in having rejected him. If they agreed with Stephen, what would it mean? It would mean that they, Israel, had put to death their own long-awaited Messiah. And that was just going too far. They couldn't do that. That was out of the question for them. Furthermore, to rethink the whole concept of redemption <clears throat> being something completely done for them. And of all things, by a man hanging from a tree, I mean, that was just too much for their pride. I mean, for redemption to have absolutely nothing to do with their good works, you know, obeying the law, keeping the Sabbath, uh, keeping their feast days, sacrificing in the temple, a tithing, <clears throat> adhering to all their customs and their traditions, you know, for, for salvation to have nothing to do with their good works, that, that was just too much. It was too big of a step of faith 
for them. We're going to be talking about Abraham today, so think of that in terms of Abraham. It was too big of a step of faith. It would entail too much change to the way things had been going for hundreds of years. And they liked the status quo, didn't they? The Jews, they liked the status quo, especially those in power. Because they had the power and they had the prestige. So rather than humbly, humbly submitting to the truth that Jesus was their Messiah, the Jews of the Greek-speaking synagogues resorted to tactics long used by religionists till the, to this day when faced with the light of truth. What did they resort to? If they couldn't defeat him with, you know, the scripture or logic or wisdom, what did they resort to? What do religionists resort to? Basically two things. You know, who is their father? The devil, the father of lies. So, so they resort to lies and they resort to violence. Satan is the father of lies and murder. First of all, what they did is they found scoundrel type characters and they abound in every age, plenty at hand. They found these type characters who they could bribe and who they could coach as to what to say against Stephen in order to stir up the people. And they were told, and with a little money, you know, here you were told, they were told to accuse him of saying blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And it's interesting to me that who did they put first? That's in verse 11. <laughs> they put Moses before God. And that was pretty much how it was. Um, so they said he, he blasphemed Moses, he blasphemed God, and then... When the citizens of the city, along with their elders and scribes, when they were sufficiently angry, and they weren't worried about the people uprising against them, you know, and stoning them for grabbing Stephen, they probably waited till Stephen was alone, and what did they do? They told lies about him, and then the violence part. They seized him, and they hauled him off to the Sanhedrin council. And then before the assembled council... Same guys that Peter and John and all the apostles had stood before, same guys that Jesus had stood before. Stephen was then further accused by false witnesses who said, and this has got to be exaggerated. Well, I mean, I know it's a lie, but look what they say in verse 13. They said he spoke ceaseless blasphemy against the temple. I mean, can you imagine ceaseless it's like all the guy did was speak blasphemy against the temple and against the law. So he's accused of four things altogether. What are they? Moses, God, the law, which is the Mosaic law, and the temple. And all the while that Stephen is being accused as a flagrant blasphemer, the glory of God himself was upon his face. Don't you just love it? This gives me chill bumps. I mean, they're throwing all these dark, evil falsities at him, accusing him of all these things, and he's just standing there like the Lord, and he's just got the glow like an angel on his face. It's amazing. The unspoken statement that was written on Stephen's angelic face was that he was not a blasphemer of God or of Moses. In fact, he was a spokesman for God, just as Moses had been a spokesman for God. And Moses, remember, was the only other natural man in all of history whose face had also radiated forth the holiness of God. So think it through. If Stephen had blasphemed God and Moses 
and God's law given through Moses, then why would he have the same honor shining from his face that had been on Moses' face when he came down from receiving the law from God on Mount Sinai? Does that make sense? That was, you know, that was not Stephen's doing. We talked about that. Stephen could not make his face look like an angel, just like you can't make your face look like an angel, because an angel's face glows like lightning. I mean, you can look sweet, but you can't make your face glow like an... <laughs> so that was the Lord's doing. That face was the Lord's doing. It was a miracle. <clears throat> By visibly putting his glory stamp on Stephen, the Lord was showing his approval of the new covenant message of Stephen. You know, the glory was on Moses when he came down with the old covenant. The glory is now on Stephen's face because what has he been proclaiming in the synagogues? The new covenant. And what is he about to proclaim in his message of chapter 7? The new covenant. So the Lord is showing his approval of his message while at the very same time he is divinely rebuking those who are falsely accusing his faithful servant. Now the impact of Stephen's life was immense. He had a huge impact. Number one, um, because of the impact that his words and his witness and his death had on a certain young man who we have already talked about, Saul of Tarsus. Stephen's life deeply, deeply affected Saul. And he kept kicking against the pricks of that witness of Stephen, and he just couldn't do it. The, the scripture was there, and I think it just worked on Saul. You know, all these scriptures that Stephen had given, how can I? I can't. I can't refute them. And then we know what happened on the road to Damascus. So the impact that Saul had, I mean, Stephen had on Saul is incredible because Saul became Paul, the greatest Christian missionary that this world has ever seen, and also the author of at least 13, possibly 14 books of the 27 books that make up our New Testament. Second, the death of Stephen gave boldness to the enemies of Christ to have an all-out citywide persecution on the followers of, of Christ, which resulted in the expansion of the church. And that was a good thing. The Lord God is good at using the evil of men to work out good things, right? So even though they killed Stephen, the Lord used it as a good thing. Because once they got away with stoning Stephen to death, they thought, well, nobody came up against us. We can, we can do this. So they started persecuting the Christians, and the persecution became severe, so the Christians left. And where did they go? out to Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. So Stephen's ministry and his message and his martyrdom served as the, we could say, the hinge pin upon which the rest of the book of Acts turns. With the council's killing of Stephen, the Lord closed the door of opportunity for Israel to be saved corporately as a nation and to thereby receive at that time the kingdom of heaven on earth. See here, this is like the spiritual leaders, the Sanhedrin council, this is their last opportunity as they stand there, sit there listening to Stephen. It's their last opportunity to repent. Because as goes the leaders, so goes the nation. And when they put him to death, that was the, the door was closed. They could have had, up to that point, they could have had the kingdom. The Lord Jesus would have returned, and he would have set up the millennial kingdom. But 
So, so Stephen's sermon, we could really say, closes the account of God's public and formal appeal to Israel's spiritual leaders. Well, returning to the accusations that were made against Stephen, although he had not blasphemed God, as they said he had, by proclaiming the deity of Jesus. You know, when he went into those synagogues, you know, he was proclaiming that Jesus was the Son of God. And so they said, you're blaspheming God. Was he blaspheming God when he said that? No, he wasn't, because Jesus is the eternal Son of God. Nor had he blasphemed Moses or the temple. Yet it was true that with the coming of Jesus and his atonement work for sin on the cross, the purpose for all of the ceremonial laws of Moses and the purpose for the temple were fulfilled. Right? That's what, what you know, the tearing of the veil when he died. That's what it showed. The, the law, the ceremonial law, not the moral law, that continues always. But the, the, the ceremonial laws and all that, the rituals and the sacrifices and all that, and the need for the temple, all of that was fulfilled. So it was obsolete. They were no longer necessary, which was a really hard truth for the Jews to swallow, as you can imagine. You know, the Mosaic law is fulfilled. Um, I wrote something down that someone said. One of my... Let me read it here. Christianity, see, Stephen is trying to show them that Christianity is not something new that came to destroy something old. Christianity is something new that came to fulfill something old. See, the Jews to this day don't understand that. They think we, we, we worship a different God. We don't worship a different God. We worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Moses. And we fulfill everything that they pictured, everything that the temple and the law pictured. They don't get that yet. Of course, they didn't get it when Stephen, Stephen got it. He was way ahead of his time, by the way, in getting this. But um, let me find my place. Um, so this was hard for them to, to swallow. So the charges against Stephen, you know, to answer these charges, that this was going to take him longer to, to do than just giving a simple, you know, Caiaphas asks him a question in chapter 7, verse 1. Are these things so? You know, he's been accused, so he's asked a question. Is it true? Are you guilty or not? Well, it's going to take Stephen a longer time than to just say, no, I'm not guilty, or yes, I'm guilty. Because he has to explain why the law and the temple are obsolete and now fulfilled. He's, he's got to do a lot of explaining. So it's going to take him a while to, to do it. It takes actually an entire chapter for Stephen to respond to that question. And he may even have gone on longer. But he was interrupted. And he was killed. So that was the end of his sermon. Uh, and he likely knew he would be killed, by the way. Especially when he gets to, look what he says in verse 51. Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do ye. I think when he said that, he might have had an idea he would be done away with. Um, so he, he, um, he was interrupted. He was killed. He never got to finish his message. But I think he said everything that he needed to say, definitely. Um, so he knew, as he begins to answer that question, that what he's going to say, first of all, it needs to be succinct, okay? It needs to be compact. 
It needs to be appropriate, something they really need to hear. It must have a penetrating influence, which means, how do you penetrate? With what? It means it needed to be full of the word of God. And very importantly, it must keep his listeners' attention and keep their anger at bay long enough for him to develop his point. It takes him a while to develop where he's going and then plunge the two-edged sword of the word, uh, the word of truth deep into their hearts. And he was so full of the Spirit of God and he was so full of wisdom that he succeeded on every one of these points. I mean, that this sermon is so powerful. And it's powerful because it's totally Bible-based. He accomplished all those things. His sermon had an impact. It cut to the heart of every one of those Sanhedrin council members. And Saul, if he was there. Which he might, might likely have been. And you know what? His sermon still has an impact today. Because it's been impacting me as I've, I've been studying it. And I'm just touching the hem of the garment. I haven't even gotten into the meat. I'm just today going to cover Abraham. And I haven't gotten ahead. I'm no further ahead than you are, really. Well, the general outline, if you can see up here on the board, I didn't put part four there. But we're, as we look at chapter seven, uh, we're going to look at it in four parts. First of all, the question, that'll be real easy. That's just verse one when Caiaphas asks the question, are these things so? And then what I'm going to do today is give you a summarization. I think what we need to do is kind of have an, a quick overview of the whole sermon, all 53 verses of it. Uh, so I'm going to give you a real quick overview. Then we'll just get today into the beginning of the narration, which is the sermon itself, which is from uh, verse 2 to verse 50. I'm calling it the narration because it is Stephen's compact narration or his retelling of Israel's history. You know, he knew how he could keep their attention because there was one subject the Jews really loved themselves <laughs> and their history and how proud they were that they were the sons of Abraham. You know? so, so this is how he succeeded in keeping their attention, by telling them again about their history. While at the same time, he uses that history to indirectly, cleverly, subtly, they don't get it at first, but he uses it to indict them. He actually turns the, he, he defends himself and the accusations made against him, while at the same time he turns the tables around and actually winds up indicting them. Now his narration obviously was selective. I mean, he didn't give all of Israel's history. He would have been, he'd, he'd be there for a long, long time if that was the case. So he gives selective history. And, and what he chose to emphasize in Israel's history was aimed at developing his own charges against them, against his listeners, which included their lack of, of uh, perceptive understanding of their own history. They thought they knew their own history really well, but they didn't see it with perceptive eyes like he does. And they thought they knew their God but they didn't know him at all, did they? They're not, on, they're not true believers. Because if they really knew God, who would, they would have recognized him in his son, right? So they're, they're just false believers. So he's going to show them their lack of understanding of their own history, their lack of understanding of God, 
and of their promised Messiah. It's altogether a brilliant message, just absolutely brilliant. And then last on our outline, I don't have that up there, but we're going to look at the application. You know, every good sermon has to have an application. Usually a preacher saves it to the end. That's what Stephen does. He saves his application till the end. It's in verses 51 to 53. I just read you verse 51. Um, his application, he took his narr narration and applied it. It was so boldly direct and so undeniably true that it cost him his life. It did. It cost him his life. But to him, the truth was more important than his own life. Well, let's look at the question. Acts 7, 1. It says, Then said the high priest, Are these things so? The high priest at the time of Stephen's trial was very likely the same man we've heard a lot about if you were with us in our life of Christ. And even the beginning of Acts. Who would that be? Caiaphas. Caiaphas. Because he was in that office until 36 AD. Now, I don't know exactly what year Stephen's trial was, but it's probably right around there. So we, they believe, you know, Caiaphas was actually the one who the apostles were brought before in chapter 4. So this is only three chapters late, later. So it is probably still Caiaphas, that evil religious hypocrite who knew that Jesus was innocent of death, but yet because it was expedient for him and for his, you know, religious cohorts to put him to death, they did. Um, and Caiaphas was also a Sadducee. So all the talk about Jesus' resurrection from the dead from his followers was a constant thorn in the flesh because, of course, we all know the Sadducees did not believe in resurrection. He and his council members had tried to silence the apostles repeatedly, hadn't they? They brought him in before them and they told him, you know, you must listen to us, speak no more in the name of Jesus. And what did they say? We must obey God more than man. So all their attempts to silence the apostles, even putting them in prison and beating them, was to no avail. <clears throat> and their influence over the people was growing. They even said, you have filled all Jerusalem with this message about Jesus. And the miracles that they were performing in Jesus' name were indisputable. They knew it. They knew it. And now, here before them was yet another man and of all things, his face is glowing like an angel. <laughs> and he's another man of the sect of the Nazarene. And by the way, he is the first Hellenistic Jew to stand before them for the sake of Jesus. So this thing is growing. You know, this guy's, he's a Greek-speaking Jew. It was so, it was just, can you imagine, to Caiaphas and the sand. It's just all so frustrating. And it just seems to them like this whole Jesus thing is never going to end. Remember what Gamaliel said? If it's of God, there's nothing you can do to stop it. That was the truth. Nevertheless, Caiaphas here, he does his part, and he, um, he allows Stephen to speak in his own defense. So he says, are these things so? so? In other words, what he's asking is, are these accusations against you true or not? Now, unfortunately, Caiaphas and the other council members did not really care what Stephen might say in response to that question. As with Jesus' trial, the whole thing is a mockery of justice. 
in that they would not openly listen to anything Stephen had to say if it disagreed with their own religious system, their own perversion of true Judaism, and if it disagreed with their pre-drawn conclusions about Jesus. So it was a mockery. They weren't open to anything new. And Stephen knew this, and this is exactly why he went about his defense the way he did, getting them to listen a long time before he finally uh, tied everything together and then drove home his point regarding their willful, stiff-necked resistance of the Holy Spirit and their guilt. Look at uh, verse 52. Take another sneak preview. Not only does he tell them they're stiff-necked and they always resist the Holy Spirit, but look what he says in verse 52. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them which showed before of the coming of the just one of whom ye have now been the betrayers and murderers. Who is the just one? And who did they know he was speaking of when he said the just one? Because who had they betrayed and murdered? Jesus, just like their forefathers had done with Joseph and Moses. We'll talk about that. And with all the prophets, they rejected them. Um, but in saying, calling Jesus the just one, he was claiming the deity of Jesus Christ. And that was it. You know, they'd had it. All right, let's give a quick overview now of the, uh, the sermon. When we read through this longest sermon, and I hope maybe when you go home, when you're doing your homework, just read through it in one sitting. It won't take you but five, ten minutes. Read through the whole sermon so you kind of get the flow of it. Um, a lot of people have, have criticized it, and they said, oh, it's random, it, it just doesn't flow, it, it, we can't figure it out, we can't outline it, it just doesn't make any sense. Well, it not only says at the beginning, before the sermon, that he was, Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit, but it also says at the end of it that he was full of the Holy Spirit. So this thing is, this sermon is Holy Spirit-filled. It is not random. It is not flawed. I mean, people will criticize and say, this is wrong, that's wrong, he didn't get his history right. No, 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 no. It's, it's all correct, and it flows, and it makes complete sense. It's very, very organized, and it's very, very powerful. But we find, when we look through it, that Stephen did defend himself against the false charges brought against him. Blasphemy of God, blasphemy of Moses, the law, and the temple. But he did so, as I said before, in a roundabout kind of a way, um, so that they didn't get it right away. Um, well, they got, they got that he believed in God because he uses the word God about 19 times in the sermon. And he tells them, I believe in the same God you did, do, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses. Um, but he didn't just come right out and say to that question, no, I did not blaspheme God because Jesus is God. He doesn't say that right away, does he? takes a while to get there. And as mentioned, he also defended himself. Really, he's not worried about himself. He's not worried about defending himself. He's defending his faith in Christ. He defends his faith in Christ by using a review of Israel's history. And then there are other issues that he addresses, which are fascinating. How you can put so much together in one sermon. But there are other issues he addresses by subtly weaving them into his historical narration, such as their proud religious obsessions over certain things, which I'll mention. You know, things in Judaism by this time, first century Judaism, had gotten to the place 
because of false shepherds, false religious leaders. Things had gotten to the place where many of the people seemed to have lost sight of the fact that salvation was not possible through obedience to the law. And it was not, salvation was not limited to a certain land and a certain ancestral lineage and to those who obeyed their customs and came to worship and offer sacrifices in their temple. Stephen, who was a Jew from a Gentile land, had a deeper perception even than the apostles. Remember, all of the apostles are what kind of Jews? We call them Hebrew Jews. It means they were all born in the land of Israel. Stephen was born somewhere else, surrounded by Gentiles. He was a Jew, now he's a Christian, but he had a bigger perspective on things than just being born in the land, you know, and raised by all that, with a, nobody else who believed different than they did. So he has a deeper perception than all the apostles at this point. And uh, it appears that he understood, as did later the apostle Paul, that the old order of things was passing away because they were fulfilled and that the new was coming. In fact, the new was already here. And we, we get this because when he speaks of the temple in verses 44 to 50, it is very clear that Stephen understood that it was going to pass away. Actually, hadn't Jesus predicted that to his disciples? Not one stone will be left upon another. And it was like horrifying to hear that to them, to his apostles. Oh, no, not, not the temple. God would never let that happen. But Stephen got it. He believed Jesus. He understood that temple was obsolete now. It's interesting to note that the apostles, whenever we've seen them in the early church start to teach, where do they always head to? Where do they go to teach? The temple. Remember, they go to Solomon's, they, go, they head to the temple to do their teaching. However, where did Stephen go? Where did Stephen go? To the Greek-speaking synagogues. You know why? Not only because he was a Greek-speaking Jew, but because he knew that these people, they only come to Jerusalem, you know, for the feasts or for whatever reasons, and then they go back to their lands, right? And he also knew that if there were any Jews who might have open minds to realize that God sent Jesus, their Messiah, to be a Savior for all people, not just the Jews, but the Gentiles, it just might be these Greek-speaking Jews. And he did get through to one of them, didn't he? <laughs> one who really got it. Uh, he saw and he wanted others to see that it was not the land, not the law, not the temple that were all important things in the redemptive plan of God, except as prophetic shadows that were um, uh, shadows of better things to come. It was their faith in God, and it was their faith in the promised Messiah, the Savior that was critical for their salvation, as it has always been. How did Adam and Eve get saved? By covering themselves with fig leaves? No, they got saved when they believed God's promise to send the promised seed of the woman, Savior. And Stephen uses Old Testament scripture to show them how foolishly unbiblical were their 
three false pillars. That Judaism had developed these three false pillars that they had set up as their means of having confidence in their standing before God. Those three false pillars of popular Judaism were the land, Moses and the law, and the temple. Now, of course, in Stephen's summarization of Israel's history, as I said, he's not trying to be all-inclusive. He can't speak their whole history. But he chose to highlight certain major periods of time. And he also chose to hone in on certain key figures in Israel's history in order to cause his listeners to realize that everything he and his fellow believers shared about Jesus was in perfect keeping with God and God's word from the days of the patriarchs all the way to the present. In rejecting Jesus, he was, getting, he was going to get them to see or wanted to, and I think they saw it, they just didn't want to admit it. But in rejecting Jesus, they were the ones who stood before God guilty of blasphemy, for they had killed God's son. They blasphemed God by placing their own ideas above his. They had essentially turned into idols, those things, that were only to serve as picture lessons of Christ and his redemptive work. The law of Moses, I mean, they practically worshipped it. They thought, oh, if they could obey it, you know, they'd be okay. Or pretty much if they could obey it, they'd be okay. Um, and they changed a lot of it anyway so that they could obey it. But that's another story. That's the Sermon on the Mount. But the law of Moses was given by God in order to teach them how far short they fell from ever possibly earning their salvation by obedience to it. Why, they couldn't even keep the Ten Commandments, much less all the laws. Could any of us? Have any of us ever kept the Ten Commandments? Absolutely not. Nobody can. The law served to define limits on behavior, but it saved nobody. Never has, never will. It was a schoolmaster to show us, to show them how desperately we all need a Savior, because none of us can earn our own way by obedience to the law. Furthermore, they had practically made an idol out of their blood relationship to Abraham through Isaac and Jacob. Remember how many times in Jesus' earthly ministry they boasted about, we're the sons of Abraham. We have Abraham as our father. I mean, to them, that practically, they were so proud of their ancestry that they believed it practically guaranteed them a place in heaven. Just as long as they're not, you know, a publican or a prostitute, or a murderer, or an adulterer, pretty much guaranteed they could go to heaven because they're the children of Abraham. And they certainly believed that their ancestry made them superior human beings to all the rest of the world. They were racists. They definitely were. They thought they were superior to everybody else because of their ancestral lineage. They had also made an idol out of Moses seemingly forgetting that Moses spoke of the one to come who would be a far greater deliverer than him, the prophet that was to be like unto him, oh, meaning that he was going to be a deliverer of his people, he said, hearken unto him, listen to him. And who was he speaking of, of course? Jesus Christ. And they made an idol out of their temple. They did make an idol of their temple while completely rejecting the one who was the true 
temple of God, the Lord Jesus. Well, every good sermon has application, and boy, oh boy, did Stephen have application. He had application that cost him his life. But he was really building up his application throughout his narration, but full force it came out in verses 51 to 53 when he indicted his hearers as the guilty ones. In effect, he said that rather than following the example of the great men of faith that he talks about, Abraham, uh, the patriarchs, Jacob, and he very quickly talks about Isaac and Jacob and the 12 patriarchs that were the head of the tribes of, the, of Israel. But um, he speaks about Abraham and Joseph and Moses and Joshua. Now, I know in the King James, look at verse 45. You'll see it says, which also our fathers that came after brought in with Jesus under the possession. That's actually Joshua. Joshua, but Joshua, you know, his name is Jesus, <laughs> Jesus is Joshua, but that really is speaking about Joshua from the Old Testament. So he says, rather than being like your great men of faith, Abraham, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, David, Solomon, and all the prophets who looked for a savior, all those guys looked for a savior, and they all spoke of the savior to come, and they were all in various different ways pro prophetic pictures of the savior to come. Rather than being like them, their rejection of Jesus and of Jesus' spokesman, the apostles and now him, they were identifying themselves with those of their ancestors who had opposed God's chosen deliverers. Joseph was rejected by his own brothers, right? Moses was rejected. Um, and the prophets, they killed most of the prophets, so that's his indictment. Now, even though our basic outline for this sermon is pretty simple, uh, basically we're going to be looking at his narration and then his application. Yet within the narration section, which is where I have this bracket over here, we're going to, uh, there's a lot of things going on within the narration. He's not only defending his faith with scripture, but he's demonstrating how wrong the Jewish religious rulers were in their attitude toward God and toward the land, and toward the law, and toward the temple, by reminding them, he's going to remind them, that uh, their own highly esteemed men of faith, who I just mentioned, that whole list of men, they did not have their attitude toward these things like they had. They didn't have an attitude about the land and the, and the law and the temple that the Jews of the present day had. In fact, all the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Jacob's 12 sons, guess what? You know what? They never even had the law. Do you know that? They were all before Moses in the law. They didn't have the law. And what else didn't they have? A temple. They didn't even have a temple or, or, or the Mosaic law. And uh, he was going to address about their, you know, their pride about the land. <clears throat> Do you know where Abraham came from? I mean, they were so proud to be Jews who lived in the land. But they boasted about being the descendants of Abraham. Well, I got news for you. He's basically tell them, telling them. Do you remember where Abraham, Abraham came from? Ur. You know what, they're, what that is today? Modern day Iraq. <laughs> he came from Iraq. Although led by God into the land of Canaan, which came to be called Israel, Abraham never even had a permanent residence or place in the land in Israel. He moved about in a tent. He never even had a permanent home. He lived in a tent. 
He was a nomad. And he never had one piece of real estate in the land of Israel other than where he buried Sarah, and then later he was buried, the cave of Machpelah. That's all. And God didn't give that to him. He bought it to bury his wife. Joseph, did you realize this? Joseph spent the vast majority of his life where? Egypt. I mean, he probably was just a teenager for a few years in the land, and then he was sold and went off to Egypt. And Jacob's descendants lived in Egypt for some 400 years. Were they all, therefore, second-class Jews? I mean, that's why the way the Sanhedrin Council, and especially the Jews around Jerusalem, looked at other Jews, you know, especially the Jews of the diaspora, like Stephen, they were second-class Jews. So were all their patriarchs second-class Jews? Because they lived most of their lives in the, outside the land? Guess what? You know how they made an idol out of Moses? I've got real big news for you guys, Stephen says. Moses never even set foot in the land. Think about it. 40 years in Egypt, 40 years in the backside of the desert of Midian, and 40 years in the wilderness. Never even ste stepped foot in Israel. Why, even David didn't have a temple. David didn't have a temple. He was forbidden to build one by God himself. Yeah, his son, Solomon, built a temple. He built God a house for his name, for his namesake, and for people to go to worship God, to offer sacrifices and prayers for God. But even in his prayer of dedication for the temple, Solomon made it very clear that the idea of God being confined to a temple was a heathen concept, only fitting for gods made of stone. He said in 1 Chronicles uh, 2.6, that the heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain God. You can't contain God into a temple, can you? Yes, he put his Shekinah glory over it for a while, but you can't contain God. God, God says his throne is his heaven. He's omnipresent. Okay, so now we get into the actual narration part. That was an overview, quick overview. We're going to get into the narration part of his message, and we're going to look at it in, three, in terms of three great epics or periods of Israel's history. First of all, there's the period of the patriarchs. That's in verses 2 to 16. This will all be in your notes when you get them an email tomorrow. Then there's the period of Moses and the law, which is verses 17 to 43. And then there's going to be the period of the temple, verses 44 to 50. Now, today we're only going to have time to begin to look real quickly at the period of the patriarchs. And even in this section, I'm not going to get through, because basically he speaks about two men. He speaks about Abraham and then Joseph, quickly mentioning you know, the other patriarchs, Isaac, Jacob, and the 12 sons of Jacob. So let's read, first of all now, about Abraham, verses 2 to 8. And he said, now this is the first thing we're actually hearing from Stephen. We haven't heard a word out of Stephen until this point. And he said, men, brethren, and fathers, hearken. Now does that sound like a man cowering and timid? <laughs> you imagine standing there, great orator, great man of God, full of the Holy Spirit. He's not trembling one single bit. And he gives this address. And he's respectful. Men. Brethren and fathers, hearken, listen to me. And then he says, first words out of his mouth, the God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. 
before he dwelt in Haran, which is 50 miles northwest of uh, Ur of the Chaldees. And this is a direct quote from Genesis, verse 3, And said unto him, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and come into the land which I shall show thee. Then came he out of the land of the Chaldeans. By the way, Mesopotamia is the Greek word for Chal the Chaldees. It's the same place. All right. Notice Abraham had to have faith, right? Then came he out. That's the human responsibility of the whole thing. When God appeared to him and said, get out, Abraham in faith got out, didn't he? It says, then came he, Abraham, out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from thence, when his father was dead, he removed him. Look at this. He removed him into this land. Who is the he there? That's God. Okay, first of all, you have the human responsibility. Then came he out. That's Abraham coming out. But then it says he, God, removed Abraham into this land. That's God's sovereignty. How do they both work together? I don't know, but they do. Wherein ye now dwell. All right, and then he gave him, that's God, gave Abraham none inheritance in it. No inheritance in the land. No, not so much as to set his foot on. He never had one piece of land, one inch of land that God gave to him of the promised land. I told you he bought a piece to, you know, of it to bury his wife, but God never gave him any. Yet he promised that he would give it to him for a possession and to his seed after him when as yet he had no child. I mean, think, Abraham was a man of great faith, okay? First of all, he has to leave a land that he was born and raised in, a land of idolatry, by the way. He was an idol worshiper. His father was an idol worshiper. He land, lived in a land of idol worshipers. He was the rightful son of Shem, Noah's son Shem. That's another story. But anyway, he was an idol worshiper. God appeared to him. He, he in faith, stepped out, not knowing where he was going. And then when he finally gets in the land, you know, God says, I, this will be yours, but you'll never have any of it. <laughs> I'll give it to your descendants. Uh, sorry, you know, you are 90 and, and um, 96 and Sarah's 90 and you still have no children and she's barren and postmenopausal, but I'm going to give this land to your seed. Wow, that takes a lot of faith, doesn't it? He totally had his faith in God. All right, verse 6, and God spake on this wise, that his seed, now look at this, God's giving him more good news, uh, th that his seed should sojourn in a strange land. All right, I'm going to give you this land, even though you don't have it yet, I'm going to promise it to your descendants, but guess what, your descendants are going to be sojourners, pilgrims in another land, and that they should bring them into bondage. They're going to be in another land, and they're going to be made slaves, and they're going to be entreated evilly for how many years? 400 years. That's just good news on top of good news, isn't it? For poor Abraham. And verse 7, And the nation to whom they shall be in bondage, ah, finally, will I judge, said God. And after that shall they come forth and serve me in this place. And he, God, gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. That's the sign he gave him that he would keep all his covenants. And so Abraham, you know, showing he believed God, begat Isaac and circumcised him the eighth day. And Isaac begat Jacob. And Jacob begat the twelve patriarchs who became, of course, the heads of the twelve tribes of Israel. Okay, 
Notice, go back to verse 2. In his address to the council, notice Stephen immediately identifies himself as a fellow Jew with his listeners. How does he refer to them? As his brethren. His place of origin may have been one of the Gentile nations of the diaspora, but he is just as much a Jew as they are. Reemphasized when he says, our father Abraham. What if he had said, your father Abraham? Not good. That would have been the end of everything. But he's telling them, he's defending their accusation that he had blasphemed God. He's telling them, no. I believe in the same God you did. You know, I'm a fellow Jew, and Abraham is my father as much as your father, and I believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He also showed respect to the position of the council members as Israel's leaders by referring to them as fathers. That shows respect. And then following his address and his appeal to listen to him, to hearken, the very first words out of his mouth were a name for God that is used only this one time in the entire New Testament. This is the only time the name, this name for God is used in all the New Testament. This identifies Stephen, interestingly, with David, King David, who alone in all of the Old Testament used this name for God. There's only one place this name is used in the Old Testament for God, and David used it, in Psalm 29.3, there's only one time in the New Testament that this name for God is used, and Stephen uses it right here. And what is this name? The God of glory. That, is, that really is the most compact, composite name for God that there is. Because it is, his glory sums up all of his attributes. His love is his glory. His holiness is his glory. His grace is his glory. Whatever you could say about God, that is part of his glory. His, his glory is who he is. So right off the bat, Stephen makes it crystal clear that he holds the Lord God, the God of Abraham, in high esteem. He is the sovereign Lord of glory. So the implication here is that he would never even think of blaspheming the very God of glory. And something else worth noting is that by referring to God in this way, Stephen is again identified with Moses. He's identified with Moses, who he was also accused of having blasphemed. How is he identified with Moses here? By saying God of glory. Well, do you remember Moses made a very bold request of God. Very bold. What did he ask God? This is back in uh, Exodus 33, 18. He asked if he might see his glory. So, um, and if you remember, you know, well, he couldn't really look directly on God's glory or he would perish. But God said, well, get yourself in a cleft of the rock and I will pass by. You won't be able to see... The, the face of my glory, but I'll let you see the back part of my glory. So then, as Stephen, think of all this, try to put all this in your mind. Stephen is standing there before the council with his face glowing with the glory of God as he refers to the God of glory 
both of which identify him with the only other man, natural man, who ever glowed with the glory of God and who requested to see the glory of God. And it was God and Moses who Stephen's accusers said he had blasphemed. You see the irony of it all? You see God's sense of humor in all of it? And also look at this. The first thing he mentions is the God of glory. And go over to verse 55. This is right before they stoned Stephen to death. Look at verse 55. It says, this is right after he cut them to the heart and they gnash their teeth against him. But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and what? Saw the glory of God. I just love that. He saw, just like Moses, he got to see I think, the face of the glory of God, not just the back parts. Well, the very next name that Stephen mentions is the name Abraham, who he calls our father Abraham. The man to whom the God of glory appeared in this narration that Stephen is giving of Israel's history was Abraham. And, of course, at the time he appeared to him, his name was Abram. So Stephen very wisely opened up his response to Caiaphas's question by essentially, although indirectly, stating that the charge against him of blaspheming God simply was not true. He, a fellow Jewish brother with these esteemed leaders of Israel, believed in the sovereign God of glory who presented himself to the man who served as the father of their faith. Now, if you were with us many, many moons ago in our study of Genesis, we spent a long time on the life of Abraham. And we have two albums back there, part one and part two, because we spent a long time. There are many chapters in Genesis on the life of Abraham. So there were a lot of things about Abraham that Stephen could have included in his narration of Israel's history, right? But, I mean, like, for example, if I was probably giving it, I would talk about when he was willing to sacrifice his only begotten son, Isaac. But Stephen doesn't even mention that. Um, he, he is purposely selective, we notice, in emphasizing the geography of Abraham's sojourn. That's what he's emphasizing. Not only his faith but his, the geography. The first thing he mentioned about him is that when the God of glory appeared to him, he was in Mesopotamia. Now, why do you think Stephen made that statement? Why did he make that particular statement, do you think? As a Jew born out of the land, Stephen saw more objectively and probably even experienced personally the pride of the Hebrew Jews many of whom believed themselves, as somehow we talked about this, how that they were superior over the Gentile Jews, or that, no, that's not, I can't say that, the Hellenist Jews, the Jews of the diaspora. They looked at the Jews like Stephen as almost second-class Jews. And how did they look at Gentiles? As dogs, really. Not even second-class people, like kind of like dogs. And this wasn't so much true of the Jews from Galilee 
like the apostles, as it was, you know, the Jews of Judea and especially around Jerusalem. But I'm sure Stephen had experienced this, that they looked down on him as a second-class Jew. So the first thing he hits these proud, self-righteous Jews of the council with was the reminder that Abraham, the great revered father of the Jewish covenant promises, was from Mesopotamia. It was not like as if Abraham had already entered into the land and then the God of glory appeared to him or spoke to him. Nor was it that the God of glory merely spoke to Abraham from heaven or even from on high of, you know, one of Israel's highest mountain peaks. It wasn't like God was on the highest mountain in Israel and he shouted, Hey, Abraham, over there in Mesopotamia, time to get your tail over here. <laughs> it says, it actually says, he appeared. He not only spoke to Abraham, he appeared to Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. <laughs> and guess what? Like I said, Mesopotamia always has been and always will be a Gentile land. Today it's known as Iraq. Now here's the principle Stephen was indirectly making, and this is one that should already have been known by these Jewish leaders. The principle is this, that the God of glory is not limited to a geographical place. That doesn't shock us, does it? The God of glory is not limited to any geographical place, such as the land of Israel or such as the temple in Jerusalem. He is the God of the whole world. He is the God of all people, whether they know him or not. And we're going to see that Stephen re-emphasizes this principle in the case of Moses, who was never not in a Gentile land. And in the case of Joseph, who spent most of his life also in a Gentile land. There was no law of Moses, there was no special land, there was no temple when God appeared to Abraham. God is not restricted to a special people group, to a special race, to a special place. He can and he does reveal himself where and when and to whom he chooses. It was through Abraham's seed that God planned to bless the entire world. Right? That was his plan from the beginning. Even the promised seed of the woman to Adam and Eve was for the whole world. They're the mother and father of the whole human race. The Jews were formed as a people group by God in a place that he chose, which just happens to be in the belly button of the land masses of the earth. It even says that in Ezekiel 5, 5, Israel is in the midst of the lands of the nations. Why did he put Abraham over there? Because they were to reach the four corners of the earth, from the middle of the earth. That makes sense. And what were they to reach the four corners of the earth about? What was their message? To reveal the true God and his promised Messiah. Well, as Stephen went on to state, I'm almost done, Abraham remained a pilgrim his entire life, even after leaving Mesopotamia, and he got hung up in Haran, 500 miles north of, of Ur of the Chaldees for a few years, and he waited there until his father died, and then he moved on, God moved him on, and he finally entered into the land. But he remained a pilgrim. As I already said, he never possessed anything except his where his body was put to rest. 
He proved to be a man of faith because he obeyed God's call to leave his homeland, not knowing where he was going, and he clung to God's promise that he would have descendants. He did mess up there for a little while and went in, unto Hagar, and we've been suffering ever since, haven't we? That one mistake. <clears throat> and even when his wife was barren and postmenopausal, he believed God's promise to give the land to his yet non-existent descendants. In fact, in Genesis 15, God told Abraham, as I said before, something that even further tested his faith, that his descendants would go into a strange land and that they would be um, slaves there for some 400 years. And that's what he mentioned in verse 6. So you see, not only did Abraham not live to see the day when he had a permanent holding in the promised land, but God told him that his descendants would leave that land for four centuries. That, would, that just couldn't have been good news for Abraham. But you know what? He believed in spite of it. Because Abraham's faith was not in a place or in a people. His faith was in God's promise, God's person and God's promises. Thus, he also believed God's promise that he would judge that nation uh, that held his descendants as prisoner, in bondage. As he, one day he will judge all the earth for all the evil that's going on today. He will judge, and he will set all things straight. And Abraham believed God's promise that they would eventually come forth and they would serve him in that land that he promised his descendants. You see, Stephen's words were a rebuke to the proud and settled leaders of Israel who enjoyed being in the actual land that God had promised Abraham's descendants. However, as much of a blessing as that is, just like it's such a blessing for us to live in America, isn't it? I mean, even with all the problems we have, it's still a great blessing to live in this land. But they, they got too settled there. And I'm afraid that's what happens to us. We just get too settled and too comfortable. Stephen was trying to emphasize to these Jews so settled in their, on their false spiritual pillars. He was trying to tell them uh, about the purely spiritual roots of their faith. Abraham's faith was not based on laws or on shrines or on holy days or special holy places, which is also true for Christianity. Our faith is... Does, what, what is there about our faith that we have to hold on to? Other than this book and God's promises. We believe in God and his promise. Remember Jesus said about Abraham to the religious rulers who were so proud, they said, oh, we have Abraham as our father. And he said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. He, Abraham, through eyes of faith, saw Jesus. And that's how we, you know, we see the second, we see Jesus through eyes of faith, don't we? We see his second coming the same way. Abraham's faith was just like, kind of like it's a return. Christianity is a return to the faith of Abraham. God can be worshipped anywhere by anyone. Abraham's faith rested totally on believing the word of God and the promises of God. The omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God of glory. And Christianity really is just simply a return to how it was in the beginning. Faith based on God himself and his promised savior. No need for a particular land. Right? No need for a particular building. 
This is just a building. Your churches are just buildings. The real church is us together, the people. No need for rituals. No need for all the hocus pocus. No need for um, incense and all the, the ceremonial laws. Yes, we still have the moral laws, but not the ceremonial laws, because those were all just shadows, and Jesus Christ is the reality. But the Jews at the time of Christ and of Stephen had, by and large, forgotten that they were only to be pilgrims passing through this world, and that as they passed through, they were to have their eyes fixed on what? That heavenly city, the celestial city, just as Abraham had. His eyes were fixed on heaven, Hebrews 11.10. They were to be share. you know, as we're passing through, as they were passing through, they were to be sharing the great news about the God of glory to all their neighbors, the Gentiles, instead of hating them. They were to be sharing with them. I mean, they had Romans and they hated the Romans, but they could be using it as an opportunity to tell them about the God of glory and God's promise that through a Savior, they too would be blessed. The Jewish religious leaders always boasted about their father Abraham. That was their key to heaven, they thought, and their special blood relationship to him. They should have been more concerned about having Abraham's faith than his blood and his willingness to move when God appeared and to not be so set in cement with their traditions and so proud of their heritage that they did not step forth in the direction that God was trying to lead them now that the Savior had come. They should have been more like Abraham, and that's what Stephen is trying to do. Take a step of faith, guys. Get out of the cement. So that's just the beginning of this fantastic, fantastic sermon. Next week, we'll look at Joseph. All right, let's pray. Father, may you work with us and in us and through us, and and as that working begins, may we never resist it. May we, none of us in this room, be so close-minded and bound to our viewpoint and to our historical practice and heritage and traditions that we would not allow you to work as you will. Help us to be Stephens who speak the truth of Scripture with boldness and with the insight that you have so privileged us to have. And Father, may we also be Abrahams, willing to step out in faith to the new things that you have planned for us in our lives, perhaps even in this new year. May we always trust in you and the promises of your word and and keep our focus ever on that celestial city that awaits all who believe in your son. For we pray in his name. Amen. God bless you.